Section 60, I Love You. Love You Computer Worm affects two-thirds of Fortune 500 companies, causing what some analysts estimate to be billions of dollars in lost productivity. CNN, May 2000. One morning during the first week of May of the new millennium, I received a call at my apartment while I was getting ready for work. I heard a reporter tell me their name and then listened to hyperventilating and apparently proclaiming their love for me repeatedly. I love you. I love you. That's what I heard anyway. The call, a reporter, early morning. It was all weird. Unfortunately, love broke out all over the internet. Over the span of a weekend, inboxes around the world of Outlook and Exchange email users were inundated with dozens of copies of email messages with the subject line, I love you. The online version includes a screenshot of such an email message. I learned from the reporter that the love email incident was deemed so serious that the PR lead gave them my home phone number and simultaneously sent me a briefing via email. In the era of dial-up, I could not read the email and talk on the phone because I only had one analog phone line at home. I had no idea what was going on, so I agreed to return the call after I dialed up and downloaded my email. That's when I realized the magnitude of the issue. For all the positives of the PC and business, IT professionals still wrestled with the freedom of PCs, not only the freedom to create presentations and spreadsheets, but the freedom to potentially wreak havoc on networks of connected PCs because of computer viruses. Viruses were hardly new, part of PCs from the earliest days. As a new hire in the Apps Development College, I completed a unit early on on MS-DOS viruses. The combination of many more PCs in the workplace, networking, and then email created a new opportunity for those wishing to do harm with viruses. By their nature, and by analogy to the word virus, most viruses were not fatal to a PC, but they could cause significant damage, loss of time, and take a good deal of effort to clean up. By the late 1990s, even amongst government and academia, the risk posed by viruses to the nation's infrastructure were front and center. Fred B. Schneider, a Cornell faculty member and former sponsor of our chapter of the Association of Computer Science Undergraduates, chaired a working group committee going back to 1996 on the topic of trustworthy information systems. The word trustworthy will make an appearance in much of Microsoft's reaction to the stories shared here. The committee included faculty from many universities and representatives from across industry, including Microsoft's owned George Spix, email G. Spix. The work was convened by the Computer Science and Technical Committee of the National Research Council and included members such as Butler Lampson, Jim Gray, and Ray Ozzie. The effort resulted in a 300-page report that was widely influential once the commercial world caught up with these challenges. The online version includes a copy of the book, Trust in Cyberspace. Enterprise IT was increasingly uneasy about viruses and had the expectation that Microsoft must do something. The openness of the PC platform was a hallmark feature responsible for the utility and breadth of the PC ecosystem, even if some bad actors, as we called them, might exploit that openness. Microsoft took a laissez-faire approach to this annoyance. Office shared this permissive attitude until the mid-1990s and the rise of networks when sharing files became common. With everyone connected, an annoyance morphed into a virus that shared itself automatically between computers. A virus infected Microsoft Word 6 called WMConcept.A. Viruses often had these cryptic names. In this case, WM stood for Word Macro, and presumably Concept referred to the fact that this was testing a new concept for viruses. This was a new type of virus. It did not exploit bugs or programming mistakes in Word. Concept used Word macros as they were designed. 
Macros were present in software for ages, going as far back to the MS-DOS days of WordPerfect and Lotus 1-2-3. Macros, called programmability or extensibility in Microsoft lingo, were a prized accomplishment and something Bill G. believed in pushing for in all of our products. Programmability made a product sticky when its customers invested time and effort to write macros. Macros are used to automate repetitive tasks. For example, if a company wrote similar letters to customers for past due notices, one could write a macro which generated letters with all the right address fields and salutations. Another example might be to automate collecting sources in a document and creating a bibliography. The uses for macros were endless, and an entire industry developed consulting and training in word automation. Word macros used a derivative of BASIC. Some macros are written to automatically run as soon as a file was opened making systems appear more automatic to end users. The WM concept virus took advantage of a combination of features to create an exceedingly simple yet maximally annoying experience. Those were macros, automatic startup, and networked file sharing. The original author of WM concept probably created a tantalizing document with the virus and shared it on a network knowing others would open the document, sort of a patient zero. Once anyone opened that document, every document they created or opened became infected. Any document they shared became infected and infected every PC that opened that document. Like the old shampoo commercial. And they told two friends, and they told two friends, and so on, and so on. Well, that is exactly what happened. WA concept circled the globe relentlessly. Contrary to what was commonly believed, Successful viruses didn't usually do anything harmful, like delete all your files or format your hard drive. If they did, the viruses would fail to replicate and serve their purpose. WM Concept did only one annoying thing other than propagate, and that was to display a message that looked like a broken word error message, a simple window with the character 1 and a button labeled OK. That was it. The message showed up once during the infection. The online version includes a screenshot of that infected document. While there was no direct harm to PCs or any documents, the obvious implications of this concept were that viruses could easily spread, and if the author wished, could do some significant harm, or at the very least, truly interrupt workflow, and at most, do heinous things like delete text at random times or worse. Removing WM concept from an infected system was a chore. A cottage industry of virus removal and disinfecting was born, as was an industry of using concept techniques to do more harm. With this virus, General Manager of Word, Peter Pathé, email Blue, decided to take the first steps on Microsoft's antivirus crusade. Blue and team changed the way macros work. They added a warning, noting that a document contained a macro installed, and also made it difficult to run macros automatically when simply opening documents. These were small steps and were, in spite of the awfulness of WM concept, greeted with much pushback by fans of Word and IT managers because these changes broke business systems and workflows. Blue stood his ground, and Microsoft's product support team proactively worked with customers to get the word out, so to speak. WM Concept was our first lesson in the incredible balance between building an extensible and customizable system and the need to maintain security and reliability on PCs, and how customers push back when making products more secure means making changes in how they work. But the virus scared me in a much broader way. I wrote another frantic 20-page memo, Unsafe at Any Megahertz. The title was a reference to the Ralph Nader book that shook up the auto industry in the 1960s. It was meant to be a call to action for our product engineering. 
The software industry grew up in a counterculture 1960s. Steve Jobs with no shoes, Bill Gates hacking his high school computer system. Both college dropouts. What the PC industry lacked was any formal notion meant to be a software engineer. My clarion call was that our lack of formalism, reproducibility, and external validation would only result in heavy-handed government regulation. I pondered a sort of underwriter's laboratory for software. That would be scary. I never sent a memo to, for fear it would be viewed as just too controversial in a company and industry that was the epitome of informal. Instead, the memo was a good exercise for me in writing his thinking and maybe double down on how Office would operate with respect to product quality. The ability for bad actors or even pranksters to wreak havoc on the growing and newly connected PC infrastructure became a major liability for Microsoft. Yet our products were behaving exactly as designed, and our customers appreciated those design patterns. Extensibility was a major selling point of Office and a major part of our product and engineering efforts. As soon as we introduced the functionality changes, new viruses were created that circumvented what protections were now in place. The online version includes a New York Times story on viruses alluding to how the programming language used in Office and other products would be the reason for the failures and that there was hope because of new programming languages. This was the New York Times, July 30th, 1998. Well, in the midst of creating the vision for Office 10 in early 1999, our PR firm, Wagner Edstrom, often called WagEd, received an inbound request from John Markoff of the New York Times. Markoff was one of the most respected reporters in technology with a deep history in reporting on all aspects of the industry, especially on intensely technical topics. He received broad acclaim for two books on hacker culture, in particular, the effort that led to the identification and capture of Kevin Mitnick, who was convicted of several computer-related crimes. In our case, Markoff inquired about a feature in Office 97, Office 2000, and a related feature in Windows 98. He was asking, following a tip he received, which we later learned was from a programmer well-known to Microsoft who built tools for MS-DOS. He was told that documents created with those versions of Office seemed to have been stamped with what the tipster referred to as a digital fingerprint. Related to this, it appeared as though the programmer discovered that Windows 98 was also creating what amounted to a fingerprint for an entire PC using similar technology. The combination meant both documents and PCs seemed to have identifiable fingerprints. Kim Buick emailed w-kimb at WagEd now Kim Barcy, of the PR firm Wagner-Edstrom, called me right away. Kim was the PR executive leading the office business and was exceptional at handling crisis situations like this. On the one hand, she talked me down from lecturing reporters about how they didn't understand, and on the other, gently reminded reporters that things might be more complicated than they seemed. Her skills were needed more than ever, as digital fingerprint was rapidly becoming a crisis. Markov was chasing two lines of inquiry, and they were leading to the same conclusion, which was that Microsoft created some sort of fingerprint or serial number in Windows and Office. If so, this constituted a major risk to privacy because documents and computers could be traced using this technology. As if this weren't enough, Intel had just announced the new Pentium 3 chip, and it contained a unique serial number, which Intel said was for security use, but fed right into the narrative of serial numbers for tracking PCs. To make this all more ominous, in one of the early discussions with Markov on Windows, someone referred to the technology as GUID, pronounced GUID, 
an acronym for Globally Unique Identifier. Big Brother was suddenly part of the story. GUID was the name of the Windows functionality that did, in fact, create what was intended to be a globally unique identifier, something useful for a broad range of programming tasks. The origin of GUIDs of Microsoft were buried deep within the system, but the value of a number that was for all practical purposes unique beat people trying to create a number on their own, something that eluded computer scientists for years. In fact, the origin of GUIDs went back at least to the early 1980s Open Software Foundation work and were originally called UUIDs for Universally Unique Identifiers. To create the unique number, the GUID creation function in Windows combined several pieces of information. One of them was the serial number of the network card, card called a MAC address, M-A-C, which was relatively unique and required for networking. That serial number remained visible in the GUID. So someone with a GUID and access somehow to their serial numbers of network cards could identify a computer. The fact that there was no database of MAC addresses or even anyone that kept track of them or that MAC addresses were part of the lowest level of how the internet worked were all facts lost on this moment. Much to Kim's frustration, I continued to try to explain. Pro tip, if in a PR crisis you find yourself explaining some deeply technical thing, stop. I couldn't stop. Kim was annoyed. The specifics of how Microsoft ended up using GUID technology made this look bad. And that was what Markov was onto. The conspiracy theory ran deep. In Office 97, we introduced hyperlinks as a native feature inside documents. It was part of our push to make Office great on the web. From within any Office document, clicking on a link opened the browser. We were especially interested in links between Office documents on a web server. One problem with documents is that if files are renamed or moved, then the link breaks. The World Wide Web was already well known for broken links. In the corporate world with reorgs and project name changes, files moved around a lot. We decided that by using front page on the server, we could keep track of links used in Office documents and detect when the file was moved, and then just repair the link. We thought this was a great way to prevent what was becoming a huge problem for the web of broken links. We need something more than a file name, since in a company, files might frequently have the same name. A clever idea was to use the new feature of Windows to create GUIDs, and when a link was created to a document, a GUID was also recorded. Links in HTML used the file and folder name, so if a file was moved or, the, or renamed, the link broke. Having a GUID gave us a chance to fix the link and find the file using front page server. We thought this was a very useful and solid plan. Will Kennedy, email Will K, was the development manager on the feature in Office 97 though he moved to Outlook shortly after we began Office 10. An Alabama native, college hire, standing six foot, six foot six inches tall, Will was the epitome of a calm development manager. I forwarded in some of the mail from Markov describing the feature. He walked through all the Office code with a test team and ascertained we did store the GUID in a document. To further the conspiracy, the GUID was not visible to end users in any way, and it was hidden in the file. However, as Office 97 progressed, and albeit late, we never implemented the fix-up feature, but the GUIDs remained. That seemed benign at the time. Will said it was trivial to remove the code and, and the GUID from the files. He prepared a quick fix for Office 97. Simultaneously, but coincidentally, Windows 98 implemented a product registration tool that, in the process of registering the PC, collected a set of information about the hardware, how much memory, disk space, CPU, etc. It was also optionally collecting personal information, like any product registration process. 
At Microsoft, the hardware information went to the Windows development team and the optional personal information went to the marketing's customer database. As it turned out, the bits of hardware information needed a unique identifier. Windows chose to use a GUID. GUIDs contained that network MAC number, which could link Windows 98 registration and documents created with Office, no matter where those documents ended up being distributed. The tipster and Markov came up with a scenario by which Microsoft could, if it wanted, maintain the capability of knowing if a document was created on a PC and who registered that PC. In fact, the theory implied that given a random document, it might be possible for Microsoft to determine who created it. All Microsoft needed to do was connect each of the new databases, and no one could stop us. Kim needed me to get on the phone with Markov and explain this theory away. I told her the theory was baseless and therefore harmless, plus we would never do what was being suggested. But it was a conspiracy theory, and you can't explain those away. Microsoft at the time, in early 1999, was not exactly the most loved company and certainly not the most trusted, especially by those outside of technology. Combined with a lack of trust was a perception of power that rivaled governments. On the other hand, the idea that somehow the Windows and Office teams could connect their database and execute on this scenario seemed laughable to me. We had enough difficulty connecting our bug databases and sharing code, even though we fully understood and had a use for those things. Kim scheduled a call with Markov. She reminded me once again to take Markov seriously, and I could not dismiss his concerns no matter how wild they were. On the call, I walked through the feature in Office, but there was no way to deny what Markov was asserting. Microsoft did have these databases. There was a serial number of a network card in a GUID. Files had GUIDs. The story was ultimately filed, and according to Kim, factual and accurate. As was almost always the case, I took the story personally. Kim reminded me that it was a win, considering where the story started and where it could have gone. The online version includes the Sunday page one story explaining the use of GUIDs in Office. We issued patches to Office, we changed Office so that it did not create GUIDs that were never used, and we also released a tool to remove GUIDs from existing, doc existing documents. Windows also changed the product registration tool and the way the GUID creation capability worked. GUIDs are widely used today on the internet, in browsers, websites, and mobile phones, and almost every conceivable application. The GUID story was also the introduction of the word metadata to the general public. Data about data not generally seen by end users, such as the GUID in an Office document. With the rise of web browsing, web browser cookies, and mobile phone records, public awareness was just being raised. Privacy advocates were in force challenging metadata collection and analysis. We were truly entering a new era of privacy concerns. Whereas WM Concept was the Office team's first experience in dealing with network viruses, GUID was our first experience dealing with privacy. These both came as we were planning Office 10 and changed the way we thought about security and privacy. In fact, security and privacy moved from defensive capabilities to main tenets in our product vision. We weren't finished learning. Just a few days after the New York Times story ran Markov's story on GUIDs, I received an interesting message in Outlook with the subject line, important message from John, and another interesting message with the subject line, important message from EJ, and another and another. In fact, my inbox was filled with important message from messages. That was not good. Each, me each message contained only the text, here is that document you asked for. Don't show anyone else with the ASCII smiley face and a file attachment called list.doc. 
The online version includes a screenshot of an infected PC with those mail messages. I wasn't the only person getting these emails. It felt as though everyone with Office running Outlook was receiving them, seemingly all at the same time. Then suddenly, I received no more messages. I couldn't send messages either. Email was down. Microsoft shut down email service, as did companies and email providers around the world. The internet was under attack by a virus, a replicating email virus. This virus was quickly analyzed by many across the internet. It was named w97m.melissa.a, as it left a signature containing the name Melissa on an infected PC. Melissa was a word macrovirus for Office 97, much like WM Concept A, but one extended to use Outlook in order to replicate. Office had been weaponized. This virus also did not harm the infected PCs, but was generating so much email that the servers were getting gummed up in what was called a denial of service attack, or DOS. The system administrators in charge of email servers were angry. More importantly, for the first time, perhaps hundreds of thousands or millions of white-collar workers were without email all at once, heading into Monday morning of a work week. If there had been any doubt, we immediately learned how important email was to the workplace. Our customers and offices around the world were angry. News reports were everywhere, though reporters had to resort to phone calls to do their reporting. And the number of mail servers impacted was in the tens of thousands, which was hundreds of thousands, if not more, PCs. This was huge. What was going on? This was a new type of virus. It, it introduced the term worm to the general population, named such because it could automatically spread itself to other PC users without any action, worming its way around the internet. In the press, the terms word and virus were used interchangeably. Once released into the wild via a deliberate email, a simple email, Melissa spread when a recipient opened the file attached to the important messages. The message was designed to look familiar, and so the file was almost always opened. That was social engineering. The attachment contained a Word macro and was written in a way that not only bypassed any protections added to Word after WM Concept, but immediately disabled the macro protection features. In this sense, it was the same as Concept. When using any email program but Outlook, Melissa was like concept, both in how it spread and its annoyance level, high. If a user was running Outlook, then Melissa went one step further. The code in the Melissa virus used the macro capabilities of Outlook, yes, Outlook had those too, and customers really loved them, to automatically send the same important message to the first 50 people in the user's Outlook address book. Instead of telling two friends, each infected PC was telling 50 and each of those who opened the attachment told 50 more. That's how the virus spread across the whole planet in a weekend. If there was any humor to it, there was not. After emailing 50 people the virus, the code checked if the current day or month was the same as the minute. If by chance it was, it added the following text to the currently open Word document. 22 points plus triple word score plus 50 points for using all my letters. Game's over, I'm out of here. That made no sense, and so it was a deep dive into where Windows kept the program settings called the registry, where it recorded that Melissa infected the PC. There, text could be found reading K-W-Y-J-I-B-O. Together, these were a reference to an episode of The Simpsons, Bart the Genius, where Bart tries to cheat at Scrabble with that word. 
Hunting down the propagator of viruses and worms was an internet hobby and profession going as far back as Robert Morris and the infamous worm unleashed from Cornell in 1988 while I was there for my first homecoming and sleuthed and then documented by Clifford Stoll in the incredible book, The Cuckoo's Egg, tracking a spy through the maze of computer espionage. Immediately, the internet tried to find clues to the origin of Melissa. In some ways, this was similar to the Centers for Disease Control trying to find patient zero. With email, this was possible because of the accurate timestamps and journey information in every mail message, the digital DNA of a computer virus. Melissa offered up another cue, unbeknownst to its creator. The list.doc file had a GUID, the kind Jordan Markov wrote about, the same feature we had just removed from office. The tipster assisting Markov, who we then knew to be Richard Smith, the CEO of Farlap, found the GUID and posted it online with the virus code. A graduate student in Sweden said the code looked familiar and pointed Smith to a username, Vicodin ES. Smith then began to connect the network card addresses, the same one he complained about as part of the GUID, and records of internet servers. Eventually, Smith was able to connect a whole trail of network card addresses to the actual creator of the virus. The creator was arrested in New Jersey at his parents' home a week after releasing the virus. The metadata in Office 2000 made that all possible. I wish I made that up. The online version includes the New York Times on finding the creator of the Melissa virus using GUID from March 30th, 1999. We assisted IT managers and sysadmins in getting their systems back online and removing the virus. This was a criminal investigation, and for our office team, it was the first time we were involved in one at this scale in real time. The week was filled with remorse, grief, anger, and finally, when we heard the metadata was involved in finding the criminal, pure disbelief. The macro capability of Outlook, as used by Melissa, developed a huge following and was a strategic aspect of the product. We were in the same spot as we were a few years earlier with Word. A key feature enterprises valued was being weaponized by virus creators. For Word, we added a series of warnings and administrative controls. Our first steps in dealing with Melissa did the same. As soon as we implemented these and put out our updates, we heard from enterprise customers and the community of consultants, authors, and Microsoft's most valued professionals, the group selected by the Microsoft support professionals to represent a broad external community. We broke their solutions built on top of Outlook. Whether these were time management, scheduling assistance, customer relationship management, tools for salespeople, or email automation, to name a few, the user was prompted by Outlook every time macros ran. It was annoying, but it needed to be that way because we did not have another way readily available to solve this problem. When people using software are in a flow, going through some task from opening email to booking tickets to opening a program to browsing the web pages, any warning messages are essentially ignored and therefore meaningless. The, this lesson was learned repeatedly by every generation of software. A warning message simply got in the way. No one reads text when there's an OK button there. As with Word, there was a gradual chipping away of the extensibility of Office. Our products and customers were put at risk to an increasingly connected world. The design approaches we took that worked for tech enthusiasts no longer work for typical office workers with relatively limited knowledge of the inner workings of PCs, and especially not for the administrators who supported them. Once a virus is thwarted by any means, the community of bad actors works to find similar patterns to exploit, but ones that work around the fixes. In the meantime, an even larger community of copycats 
duplicate the existing exploit and take advantage of unpatched software or software protected by relatively unsophisticated antivirus tools that did not pick up on small changes to the pattern used. That's how virus works. We briefly secured the product. The stories from the first week in May 2000 when I received that exhilarating call at home on Sunday morning were reporting billions of dollars in damage. Computer users around the world blocked from using email or even working. The report cited the previous Melissa exploit and the much earlier concept viruses word and many in between. That's when I realized the magnitude of the issue. In reporting, once there are three points of evidence, then there is a trend. In this case, the trend was the escalating risk of using Office and the escalating costs to business IT professionals maintaining corporate desktops. TCO, our old friend total cost of ownership, was again a critical issue. In an online story posted the first evening of the spread of the virus, industry experts anticipated that by morning, half of all PCs in North America became infected, and more than 100,000 email servers in Europe were infected or taken offline as a precaution. The United States Senate was infected, as were important news outlets such as Dow Jones. The infections reached worldwide telecom and television outlets in Denmark and employees of Compaq Computer as far away as Malaysia. The impact was profound. Billions of dollars in immediately lost productivity and money were spent to eradicate the virus. Customers were livid. If and how we respond to this was clearly going to be a test of the empathy for the pain customers were experiencing. The creators of the I Love You Worm, dubbed Love Bug in the widespread press, exploited a hole in the warning messages that ran when Outlook's data, such as contacts, were accessed. As with Melissa, the worm used the contact list and replicated itself. But instead of just the first 50 contacts, it automatically and silently sent email to all contacts in an address book. This infection also installed itself on the computer, so it continued to run all the time and did damage by deleting files and replacing them with copies of the virus. The infection was started by an email attachment with the name Love Letter, which was a hidden program and not a letter at all. Any email program would have been vulnerable to this method of transmission, which simply required the user to open the file on their PC. But Outlook was not only the most prominent, it was also the most easily programmable. programmable. It was bad, really bad. The online version includes the CNN story from May 6, 2000, with the $8 billion estimate damage that ran as high as $15 billion. The team was trying to figure out what to do and began exploring options. Microsoft Office was having a Tylenol moment. While the human suffering of the computer virus was dramatically less than that of the 1982 product tampering case that left seven people dead from poisoning, the brand suffering was comparable. Could Outlook be trusted? Could Microsoft? Tylenol's parent company, Johnson & Johnson, took unprecedented and drastic measures to save lives and rebuild consumer confidence in the brand. They removed all medicine from distribution and encouraged the destruction of all pills. In addition, the company diagnosed and improved their systems, including the development of tamper-resistant packaging. In doing so, they developed the modern playbook for crisis management. Acting with uncharacteristic haste, the U.S. Congress House Science Committee, the Technology Subcommittee, held hearings on May 10, 2000. Witnesses testified about the love bug computer virus that infected over 10 million computers worldwide, shutting down internet servers and corrupting files. Testimony centered around how the virus spread so quickly, the impacts and damages, and what steps could be taken to prevent similar attacks in the future. The witnesses were third-party experts and not from Microsoft. 
The testimony, I believe, stands in contrast to the hearings of the present day on social networks and how relatively calm and rational, even in the midst of a crisis, the dialogue was. Still, it is worth noting that the hearings made numerous references to the ongoing investigation of Microsoft and the global market power the company maintained. The online version includes a link to that uh, congressional testimony. Like so many crisis situations in management, at first, managers, like me, think they will show up and save the day with some brilliant idea that no one thought of. Failing that, as is almost always the case, the next approach is to take several options and combine them into what seems like brilliant but an unworkable solution. That is, that's assuming you don't show up and just wish the whole thing wasn't happening. That, too, is never the case. Rob Price, email Rob PR, Outlook's PM leader, and Will K led the discussion. Their view was clear. First, we would disable sending a bunch of file types and attachments that people routinely sent or opened if they showed up in an inbox. Essentially, this meant not sending executable programs or files that ran when opened. Second, we would guard Outlook such that any programmatic access to the address book or attempt to send email silently generated a warning and disabled access. Finally, although wonky, we would treat all email as untrusted which basically meant that no matter how code was snuck into an email message, it did not run without a lot of warnings. We would effectively quarantine email messages and isolate the user's important Outlook data from any code. These actions could be enforced and customized by administrators in large companies. The team wanted to talk about exactly how much stuff would break in the process. Kurt Delbaney, the general manager, and Martin Staley, email Martin ST, Outlook's test manager, said that no matter how much or how little we broke, customers would complain we broke either too much or too little. Some things were super simple. For example, large companies compressed their files before emailing them as attachments in order to save storage and bandwidth. A common way to, for them to send them without requiring a separate program to decompress them was to have the compressed file sent as an executable file, which was automatically decompressed and saved on the local hard drive when opened as an attachment. This extension to Outlook was very popular, and it would be totally broken, rendering attachments invisible to recipients. The debate was not whether to make these changes as soon as possible, but whether we should even enable companies to turn them off or somehow reduce the scope of protection. As veterans of the past few rounds of viruses, there was a reluctance to enable IT pros to reduce the protections on a PC. Their assessments weighed the risk of an important boss or stakeholder not getting work done with the support costs across an organization if a virus were to eventually surface. We knew with any option that some percentage of customers would side with more pain in after-the-fact remediation than pain of prevention. It was the wrong trade-off, but the kind that is often made in IT organizations when they are put on the defensive because of weaknesses of the products they are supporting. What the team really wanted was permission to cause the pain. They knew what we needed to do, but there would be pushback. They wanted to know I would support them. For that, I did not hesitate, given how much pain we had already caused and how much they clearly understood about the problem and solution. There was so much going on to suggest this significantly undermined the whole value proposition of Office that I wondered if we would have to introduce Outlook-free versions of Office and reduce pricing. Everything always came back to pricing. In four weeks, on June 8, 2000, the team completed the patch and made it available for download. The now infamous Outlook email security update. It went out for Office 97 and 2000, Outlook 98 and Outlook 2000, and for all subversions of those products around the world. The online version includes a screenshot of Outlook with the protections functioning.
Four weeks might seem like a long time, but the cleansing PCs of the problem was time-consuming and occupied IT. The antivirus vendors and email security products did their part. We notified product support and field sales. Marketing prepared a library of materials, as did support, who wrote detailed technical articles for the Microsoft knowledge base. We issued a long interview with me as a news release detailing all the fixes. We did calls with all the major press outlets. The rollout was still bumpy. With every virus, the knowledgeable PC enthusiasts tend to take the blame the user stance when faced with an update that diminishes PC capabilities. We saw this with both Concept and Melissa. In the case of Love, features like mailing around code were precisely what enthusiasts did frequently, so they were rather irate. In forums, they complained. Who opens attachments from people you don't know? People are busy and expect PCs to work. They don't view using a PC in the same vein as walking down a dark alley in a strange city. Quickly, the community took to trying to find workarounds for the security changes, but to no avail. Selville declared that end users should change a few IT settings that we did provide and return their PCs to normal. Enterprise admins behaved as expected. Some optimized for the near term. Others took the pain in changing workflow and incompatibilities. Outlook with the email security update was a new normal and eventually accepted. While in hindsight it all seemed easy, the idea of breaking an important ecosystem for a new product especially was antithetical to Microsoft's focus on compatibility. What the team proposed and then delivered was gutsy. The online version includes an example of an after-action report from the military who were especially hard hit and had only recently made a huge bet on Microsoft Exchange and Outlook. From the DoD Army Forcecom after-action report, I love you, virus lessons learned. Office continued to have a fewer and mostly less severe viruses for decades to come. At least a part of that was due to the Outlook email security update. Tech enthusiasts, IT pros, and even our beloved MVPs complained for years and wrote many articles pejoratively referring to the email security update as they adjusted to a new normal for Outlook. The world moved on, and it was a bit safer using Outlook and Office. <laughs>